Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Olaf, and it really is a pleasure to be here. I'm going to be talking about the world of 3D printing and really what it's being used for today. Let's say, for example, I wanted to make a bust of my head. I'd start with a block of marble, hammer, chisel, and I'd chip away all the marble. I'd remove the stone that I don't want to be left with apart. So that's still the way most things are made today. 3D printing, you start with nothing. You start with your virtual computer model. So that's the one thing you need to 3D print is a computer model. You send it to the printer, printer slices it up into thin slices and then layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, it builds it up. Um, so think about it from a sustainability point of view. With the old way of manufacturing, you're cutting away material, all of that material now has to be recycled or thrown away. In fact, commonly it's thrown away because it's too expensive to recycle. Additive manufacturing, you're typically only printing with the material you need, so there's no waste material, or relatively little waste material. There is something called support material with some technologies used, but relatively speaking, not all that much waste material. So, and that's gonna get better and better in the future. So it's gonna become a really good way of manufacturing things in the future. Having said that, we've gotta be really careful. I don't think 3D printing will ever replace conventional manufacturing entirely. It's, it's gonna be used for high value, low volume products, even in the fairly distant future. The reason for that, it's a relatively slow and expensive technology. So you've gotta be able to use it for the right reasons. And those reasons means it has to add value to what you're doing. And one of the best known areas where 3D printing adds value is with what, what's called complexity for free. Now, it's not actually for free, but what we mean by that is with conventional manufacturing, the more complex a part is in geometry, the harder it is to manufacture, the more expensive it is to manufacture, and at some point, it just becomes impossible. With 3D printing, it's the other way around. The more complex the part, the better it is to manufacture. And I'll give you a very simple example. So one of my hobbies is making guitars. So this is a guitar with New York City inside the guitar. We've got the Brooklyn Bridge up here, Yankee Stadium, Fifth Avenue down the bottom with little cars inside. Now something like that, this is a Gibson Les Paul shape. I could technically print a standard Gibson Les Paul, but it would be a stupid thing to print. It would be really expensive, not all that good quality, and not all that interesting. This would be impossible to make any other way. And this is all, the body's all printed in one piece with all the objects in it as you see them. So thinking complexity, making parts that are more complicated becomes a big advantage. Whereas with conventional manufacturing, you have to keep everything simple enough to do it in the best possible way. Um, other things, and I can pass some of these around. So here we've got a ball in a ball in a ball. And it makes a really nice example of something that would be impossible to make any other way. And I'll just throw it down this way and we can pass it around. So it's printed in nylon in this case. And you think about how you would make something that complex any other way. So one area that's going crazy right now is jewelry where jewelers are suddenly creating these amazing models. So again, another piece of 3D printed jewelry, this one's gold-plated, printed in metal. It's just a complex, mathematically-derived model that allows you, that would be impossible to make any other way. So now we're seeing a whole new slew of businesses coming out where jewelers are designing this incredible jewelry that you couldn't make any other way, and they're not even having to own a printer. They actually go to some of the online services that print it for you, sell it through the, sh the storefront of those websites, so it's a whole new way of doing business. So complexity from, I guess, an uh, aesthetic point of view, there's whole new areas of design starting up. Another big area that complexity allows is light weighting, making products that are much lighter. So there's something called topology optimization, which means you look at the, you use mathematics to remove the material that's not doing anything useful. So if, for example, I did an analysis of this barrel, I'd probably find 30% of the material in that barrel is doing nothing useful. So get rid of it. So 
If you think about something like an airplane part, every gram you save, every kilogram you save on an airplane is thousands of dollars of fuel you save a year. So that's where areas like topology optimization really start to add value. And I've got an example of that. It's a little aluminum bracket, but this weighs 60% less than the original component to mount an expensive bit of kit on a bicycle. So it sounds like almost like a bit of a waste to 3D print a metal part to clamp your, not quite your iPhone, but uh, you know, a part onto a bicycle. But weighing 60% less, now that adds value. If you're a bicycle racer, that's the difference between winning and losing a, a race, saving that weight. So that's a big area of growth right now, is using it to make lighter components. So complexity, first big advantage. The next big advantage is what we call mass customization. So let's imagine we're making products for everybody in this room. So let's. Imagine it's a handheld product, so a phone, something like that. The way we do it today, we'll go around everybody in the room, we'll measure all of your hands, we'll then average all those measurements together and we'll design our product for that average hand to be able to press all the buttons, which means we end up with a product that doesn't actually fit anybody. It's compromised, but it's the way we do products today. So mass customization, the idea with that is to make a product for everybody in this room, but each product is custom made for you, the user, to fit you perfectly. This is a growing area. There's now about eight companies doing shoe inserts, where from a scan or an iPhone picture of the bottom of your foot, they'll make a shoe insert, an orthopedic shoe, shoe insert to make your shoes fit you perfectly. The medical world is going crazy over this, because anything medical needs to fit your body, and all our bodies are unique. So for example, hip replacements that are custom made for us, um, vertebra replacements. I've got a little vertebra replacement here printed in titanium. Uh, you know, this is really changing medicine as we know it today. Um, here I've got a little lattice. It's like a little mesh made up of titanium for bone replacement. So the idea is let's say I have an accident and I'm missing a chunk of bone. They'll print this in the shape it needs to be, implant it, and the idea is my bone grows into the titanium. So it's osseointegration where the bone grows into the titanium to give me a full strength replacement. Now think about that with a hip replacement. You know, a hip replacement, typically it's a ball joint, it's screwed into the hip, and if your gra grandmother has a hip replacement five or 10 years later, she needs to go to another operation to get it tightened. With this new technology, because you can make the outer surface porous, you have the bone growing into it, which means one operation, and that'll last you the rest of your life. Assuming you have bone growth, of course, but you know, most of us do. So mass customization is a hugely growing area around the world. One nice example we did about two years ago in Sweden for a little girl called Naya, two and a half year old girl missing the bottom half of her arm. So custom prosthetics. And with a $300 3D scanner, it's basically it's a gizmo that transforms your iPhone or your iPad into a 3D scanner. We scanned the residual and we scanned her arm and made her a prosthetic that fits her perfectly. Um, this is the actual prosthetic here. So we did two versions. One was just the cup part with myoelectric implants to pick up muscle movements to control a bionic hand. But when Naya was just running around the home, this was the hand because the parents didn't want her running with a $20,000 hand around the home. So this was the passive prosthetic that you know she could just wear for comfort around the house. And the key here is the socket fits her perfectly because it's based on the scan of her own arm. And what was interesting, now it's hard to say, you imagine in the future, now this one's decorated with sort of a mesh pattern on the outside, but you imagine in the future we'll have an iPad app where she can drag dragonflies or butterflies or Hello Kitties onto it to customize it the way she wants it aesthetically as well. And look, I can't say for sure, but she seemed to almost be showing this off to her friends, saying, look, here's something cool I've got. Whereas conventionally with prosthetics, they're really ugly. So people, it's a stigma attached to prosthetics. People don't go out as often as they should. So this has now sprung out, they've now spun this out into a, a company doing 
prosthetic fairings, which are clip-on aesthetic decorations to make your prosthetic look beautiful. So they had one customer who had tattoos on his left calf, so they printed him out a fairing for his prosthetic with a matching tattoo to make it look like, an, like a work of art rather than a purely functional, ugly, ugly object. So mass customization is a hugely growing area. My prediction is in the next five or 10 years, anytime we buy a high value product, luxury goods, we'll expect it to be custom made for us. Now, probably bad example, but let's say we buy a Louis Vuitton handbag, we'll expect the handle to be made to fit our hand perfectly. It's already happening a lot with eyewear. Eyewear is expensive. So they now have systems that'll scan, they'll take the prescription, and your prescription tells you your, your, face, your glasses are supposed to sit at a certain height to be perfect. They'll scan your face, and then the computer program will line up your prescription at the exact right height it's supposed to be, and then print a set of frames that fits your nose perfectly and lines up those glasses exactly where they should be. So now you're adding value. So it's an expensive technology, but when you're paying six, seven hundred dollars, a thousand dollars for a pair of glasses, the printing part is actually a very small cost. So it becomes a viable way of doing things. So as I said, we've got complexity, mass customization. The third, I guess, engineering advantage of 3D printing is what we call part consolidation. So what we mean by that is conventional manufacturing, we make lots and lots of simple parts, and then we assemble them together into one much more complex part. We glue them, we screw them together, and so on. Because of complexity, with 3D printing, we can take all of those simple parts, join them together into one much more complex part. So instead of your product being made up of 30 or 50 or 100 different parts, it's now made up of one, two, or three parts. Um, a little example of that, uh, let me just find a good one. So for example, this is called the brain gear. It's just a little sphere full of gears. Now all of those gears turn. But that whole ball is printed in one piece, assembled, ready to go. No assembly required. But the parts are printed with a gap between the moving parts, which allows you to make entirely working assemblies straight out of the machine. Now, this is a powder-based process. You use powder to make the part with a laser that melts the powder. So when you take it out, you play archaeologist, you dig it out of the powder, you blow out the powder from between the moving parts, and you've got a moving part. Or even nicer example of that is chain mail, where they name like entire garments and fashion accessories out of chain mail. So entire, there's entire fashion shows dedicated not to 3D printed fashion. I mean, some of it looks incredibly uncomfortable, I have to say, but you know, it, it looks beautiful. I mean, stunning works of art. Um, for those of you who've seen a lot of the recent movies, Black Panther, where all the costumes were 3D printed, for example. I mean, really incredible stuff. Just a word of warning, you do have to be a little bit careful with the media when you see 3D printing in the media. So for those of you who've seen, for example, Ocean's 8, where they use a you know, $1,000 desktop printer and they print jewelry with stones and gold in it, not the case. We're not quite there yet. We're still a fair few years away from that. So we've talked about complexity, definite advantage. If your part is really complex, printing is probably an option. If you want to make a product that's custom made for the user, because it doesn't cost anything more to make 100 parts different or 100 parts the same, then it's a good player for you. Or if you want to reduce the number of components. Now think about the implications of reducing the number of components. Less subcontractors, less parts to keep in stock. Anybody who's ever had to do stock take, it's a horrible job where you run around counting all the parts. Imagine that, you now, you now have your number of components, or one-tenth of the number of components. That's where you're starting to really add value. So then on the, let's say the non-engineering side, but some of the other advantages, something called tool-free production. If you have an idea for a product, the cost to get it 
into reality is so high that it kills 80% of ideas. Now, if everybody in this room had a really good idea, or you thought you had a really good idea, it's probably a fair chance that 80% of those ideas would be dumb ideas. The problem is, how do we know? How do we know which ones are the good ideas, which ones are the bad ideas, unless you can realize and turn them into some form of a prototype? And this is where 3D printing really, there's no setup cost, there's no tooling cost. You pretty much hit print, and the next day you've got your parts ready to test for real. Then you might find that it's not such a good idea and you start over again, but at least you've found out for sure. It also means with the recent advances, of, to go back to the beginning, 3D printing is not new, it's over 30 years old today, but for most of that time it's been known as rapid prototyping a tool to test out ideas, to do a quick prototype before you spend the big bucks to go into production. Over the last 10 years or so, some of the technologies have gotten good enough where you can make the real part to sell to the customer. And that's where that tool-free production really starts to play in. Because now you've got your idea, you can print it, sell it to the customers. So my guitars are an example of that. I, I've sold about probably about 60 of them um, over the last 2011 I started making them. Um, so no setup cost. No, I didn't have to go to the bank to say, please can I have a loan to test out this idea. So that's the beauty, no capital investment. I didn't have to go to my dad to say, please can I get some money to try out this idea. That is really incredible. And then you get to the even softer side of things, which is creativity stimulation. To my mind, manufacturing is actually a barrier to creativity. If you have an idea for something, realizing it, turning into something real is actually difficult. And I'll give you, uh, one of the first animal prosthetics. It was an American eagle that lost its beak in a hunting accident. Hunting accident, he got his beak shot off. Um, so they scanned the beak of a good eagle, modified it to fit the eagle with a missing beak, printed it out, glued it on, literally glued it on with epoxy resin, and saved the eagle's life. So it's quite a nice feel-good story. The point of the story, though, is that you could have made that beak a hundred other ways. You could have whittled it out, carved it out by hand. You could have done it on a CNC machine. The problem is, is it's too hard. And that difficulty means we don't try out a lot of ideas that might be really, really good ideas that are well worth trying out. And this is where there's now a lot of desktop printers. So desktop printers are printers that typically cost below $5,000. You can buy a printer from, call it $300 to about $2,000, you'll get quite a good quality 3D printer. I personally, I strongly believe every engineer, every designer, every artist should have one of these. They're too cheap not to have one. It becomes a tool to trial ideas. Now, don't misunderstand me. Those printers are not the same as these really expensive printers that we print these guitars out of, all these metal parts out of. But that ability to try out crazy ideas is invaluable. And that's where a lot of, I think, value can be added in New Zealand by having crazy people try crazy ideas. Uh, to me, I mean, one of the things, you know, they talk about innovation and entrepreneurship. You've got to fail fast and fail often. And from my point of view, with 3D printing, you fail extra fast, fail extra often. And to me, I mean, that's a brilliant thing to be able to do things. It's the only way you find out if your idea is sensible or not. Otherwise, you don't know for sure. And I'll give you another sort of creative example, which is slightly politically incorrect. Uh, this was when I was in Sweden about two years ago. One of the companies that does a lot of, me lot of metal printing um, asked me to do an executive giveaway. So something to give away to their really good clients, um, to, to, you know, in winter being, uh, Sweden being cold and miserable in winter, um, they suggested doing a little desktop distillery. So the toy for the executive who has everything. So I did my first design. This is my first design. It's sort of like a moonshine still. It does work. 
not very well, but it does work. And the idea is you have it on a disc with some tea light candles on this side. It evaporates the alcohol, goes through the coils, and comes out into your shot glass uh, waiting on your table. So when the executive's got nothing better to do. So for those of you who want to have a look at it, come and have a look at it after. So I said, this one I did about two years ago. And I thought it looked a bit, well, moonshiny, sort of, you know, not all that classy. Um, so last year, I designed a new version. So this is the new version of the distillery, disguised as a Tintin rocket, as a bit of a design icon. It's three parts. So it unscrews here and here. Um, you put your mash down the bottom, ice cubes in the top, and the, the alcohol comes out the little spout on the side. So as I said, the point here is not the distillery. It's like the water purification system. It's the fact that you can try out crazy ideas just to see if they work. And in fact, it does work. So this one, I haven't actually tested this one yet. I think it will work, but it'll be incredibly inefficient. But it was done more as an object to sit on your desk than as, well, something to distill booze on, for example. Yeah. So in terms of where it's being used today, another big area is what we call manufacturing on demand. So right now, companies around the world have got warehouses and warehouses full of spare parts. Um, to give you an example, Tetra Pak in Sweden that we did a lot of work for, in their warehouse in Nund, they've got 800,000 unique spare parts. That's 800,000 different components that they have to keep for 20 years because of the law in Sweden. They freely admit that 60 to 70% of those parts they'll end up scrapping after 20 years. It's 20% of the parts that are daily consumable, send them out all the time, but the other 60, 70, 80% of the parts never get used. So they scrap them at the end of the time. So now the idea is instead of keeping real parts in stock shelves, you keep a digital repository. So you keep all your files digitally and you print them where you need them, when you need them. Imagine now not having to ship goods around the world. You now ship a digital file around the world through the cloud, download it wherever you need it, when you need it, instead of keeping files. So this is a growing area around the world. Right now, in car parts around the world, sitting in warehouses, there's something like $450 billion worth of parts sitting on, car on shelves doing nothing useful. Imagine being able to free up that money to do something useful. Think how valuable that would be to the world at large. So this is a growing area. It's not happening mainstream yet. So Volkswagen are doing small parts. So the three provisos Volkswagen have used for using spare parts is the parts must be small, they must be invisible, because the surface finish on 3D printed parts today is not fantastic coming out of the machine without a lot of work. So to get them shiny like the parts you see here, that's a lot of extra work to get them to that level. And they need to be non-critical. They're not brave enough yet to put it on part that if it breaks and kills somebody, that's too much of a problem. But that will come very soon. There's now hundreds of thousands of flying parts on airplanes today. Again, not critical parts yet. It tends to be ducting and brackets and things like that. But that's going to change as well in the very near future, where we're going to start seeing more valuable parts floating in the air. There's now a printer on the space station. And the idea is, well, if you need a spare wrench or a spare span or a spare tool, you've got to shoot up a rocket into space to send it up to them. Why can't they make it on the space station when they need it? So right now, it's a plastic printer, but they're now looking at how do we get a metal printer on the space station. And some challenges on that, because most of the metal printers today work with powdered metal. Imagine powdered metal and zero gravity. <laughs> Slight problem there. So as I said, they're working on There's ways of fixing the problem. There's other technologies with metal powder that may work. Um, and so on. So the, the, the applications for 3D printing are growing like crazy around the world. What we really need now is imaginative people to think up crazy new things to do with it, to really push the limits. So as I said, that's mostly what's happening around the world today. Where technology is heading, I guess, in the very near future. Now, 
it's weird because when I say the future, a lot of it's actually starting to happen today. So right now, the big push for research around the world is speed. These printers are slow. As the speed goes, so right now the laser we've got at the university has got one laser. There are now systems that have got four lasers, which are four times faster. By the end of the year, they'll have 12 lasers. There's now a company talking about a system with a million lasers. So it's like an array of laser diodes scanning across. The idea is to make the printers print faster. If they print faster, they get cheaper, which means more people can use them. But where they're heading in the very near future is large scale. People want to print bigger objects. Right now, we're limited roughly to basketball size. So the biggest commercial printer, 500 millimeters, 500 millimeters, 500 millimeters. There's one in South Africa now that does 1.6 meters by 600 by 600 for doing large airplane parts in titanium. Where it gets really interesting now on the large scale is the idea of printing houses, entire houses. And the idea is incredibly simple. They're just squeezing concrete out of a tube. So it's exactly the same principle as icing a cake. You've got your, your icing bag with your nozzle on the end, and you squeeze out the icing, and you draw on the cake, and you can go in multiple layers to build it up. Same idea with printing houses. You put down layers of concrete, and you draw one layer. You then move up a step, draw the next layer, and away you go until the house is finished. So this is now existing technology. It exists today. Um, so the guy who invented the idea was Prof. Koshnevis from the University of Southern California. His prediction was by the time the technology is mature, 48 hours to print a house ready to move into. Company in China called Winsun said, we can do better, and they printed 10 houses in 24 hours. They printed sections of the house in a factory, then trucked them to site and then glued them together on site afterwards. But since then, this was about five years ago. Since then, that same company had done an entire apartment building printed. They've done uh, bus stops, um, public toilets. In the Philippines, there's been an entire hotel villa. In France, about six months ago, they've had the first low-cost housing project developed like that with people moving into it, living in it. Now, so that makes quite a difference. You think about disaster recovery, when there's earthquakes or floods, being able to quickly deploy housing that you can print in 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours. Think, I mean, anybody who's been involved in construction, renovation, building a house now, what is it, how long does it take in New Zealand? Six months if you're lucky, a year or longer. So imagine being able to print a house in you know, a few days. And they've now got plumbing systems, um, electrical systems, modular systems that robots can sort of plug and play together as the house is printing, ready to go. So as I said, are we there yet? Not quite. But the technology exists, it's just not commercially viable quite yet. To me, one of the big areas of interest, and probably a criticism of house printing as it is today, is almost all the houses that have been printed to date have been incredibly boring. They've been flat-walled houses, and you think, well, why bother? I mean, you can precast the walls much more efficiently, truck them to site, glue them together on site afterwards. So I think we need the architects to get involved to do some really crazy things. And it's starting. So recently, there was a bridge built in Holland where they built this fantastic sci science fiction-looking bridge welded out of metal. I mean, really a work of art. Now, that's bringing something that you couldn't make conventionally. That becomes a big advantage. But one of the big areas where this house printing, so NASA have now built one of these big printers in the Nevada desert because they're planning the mission to Mars. And the idea is when you get to Mars, well, you don't really want to shoot up rockets full of bricks and concrete to build your habitats on Mars. The idea is you want to mine all the material on Mars and then use it to print your habitats as you go on Mars. 
that gets interesting because now there's a reason. I mean, as I said, sending up bricks into space just doesn't make any sense. So this starts to get really interesting. So that's on the call of the ultra large scale, the idea of printing houses. And as I said, it does exist today, but it's not quite yet commercially viable. You cannot go online, order a house, but that will come in the next, I don't know, probably my prediction is 10 years or so before it becomes commercially viable to make it worthwhile doing that and interesting enough to make it worthwhile doing that. As I said, if it's a wall with flat, if a house with flat walls, I have my doubts as to whether, I think there'll always be better, cheaper ways of doing it if it's, you know, that sort of level. On the opposite end of the spectrum, printing really, really small things, so nanoprinting. So the idea, the science fiction idea, for those of you, there's a, there's a movie called, I think, Incredible Voyage, where they shrink a bunch of scientists down into a little submarine and shoot them into the president or the politician. They went in there to cure them of, I don't know what it was for. But the point, that's the idea. The idea is to print very, very small micro-machines that could go into your bloodstream. Now, we're not quite at that level yet. Right now, they are able to print at the micron size relatively easy. At the nano size, not quite yet. They can print features on a micron part at the nano size, but not quite that small yet. But as I said, it's only a matter of time before we get to that sort of level. So things like microfluidics, lab on a chip. So the idea, for example, if you want to count bacteria, is you get them to line up single file, and then you can count them. So that's the idea with microfluidics. You make a really thin channel that's so thin that whatever you're trying to count can only line up in a single row, so it gives you a chance to count them. Those sorts of applications are becoming really, really interesting areas of 3D printing. Now, don't get me wrong, 3D printing is not the only area that you can make those with. There's other methods as well, so really, really interesting area of growth. To me, possibly one of the most I guess interesting and, and science fiction ideas, but it's already happening today, is bioprinting, tissue engineering. So printing replacement organs and body parts. Now think about that for a second, being able to print yourself out a new kidney or a new heart or whatever. Now, we're not there yet. So this is happening today. The idea is actually relatively simple. They print using your own stem cells. So they'll harvest stem cells from your body, multiply them to get enough of them, and they'll print them out into the shape they need to be and then the, the stem cells are programmed to become what they're supposed to become and become the kidney or the liver or whatever they're supposed to be. And two ways of doing them, you either print them with a, on a biodegradable sp uh, scaffold. So it's like a sponge made up of biodegradable plastic and you seed it with the cells and then as the scaffold is dissolving, the cells become what they're supposed to become. And then the newer way is actually even simpler. You print the cells suspended in a hydrogel, so a gelatin, for want of a better word. So you mix up your gelatin with your stem cells, and the gelatin is what holds them together in the right shape so they become what they're allowed to become. So think about the implications of that, being able to print out body parts. Think about some of the, the ethical implications of that. Should you be able to print yourself out a body to keep in the refrigerator at home just in case? There's a movie called The Island where rich people keep clones of themselves on an island to use as spare parts. The same sort of questions start to apply to that. Should you be able to print yourself an organ that's better than your original one? I'm an engineer, so absolutely yes. But I, I'm, I'm sure there will be reasons why that shouldn't be. Just think about the cool Olympics we would have. You know, super Olympics you know, with augmented athletes. You know. so, Look, who knows what's going to happen? So today, where is it today? They can print simple organs. They've done tracheas, heart valves, bladders, um, that sort of stuff they can print today. So effectively, I would call it almost skin. 
A bladder is a bag of skin. A trachea is a tube of skin. What they cannot do yet is the more complex organs like, organs like kidneys or pancreases and so on. Um, I think what they need to crack is the, the vascular system. Once they can print the blood vessels that lead everything through where it needs to go, I think very quickly we will get to the stage where we can print those much more complex body parts in a good way. My prediction, in my lifetime, but probably too late for me. But yeah, I mean, watch this space. This is happening around, I mean, around the world. Every university, almost everywhere, is doing research in this area. So it's a very rapidly growing area. And again, don't misunderstand me. Printing is only a tiny part of it. It involves medical, biology, software, mechanical engineering. All of the sciences really combined. So it's a really multidisciplinary research area that's growing, as it like crazy around the world. And then probably the last area I'll leave you with is the idea of food printing. So printing food. And this is, again, happening. There's now an entire conference on printed food. So let me go back a step. Printing food today is basically not happening. So the closest they've come is 3D printed meat, which is exactly the same technology as the bioengineering. So they use bovine stem cells or stem cells from a cow. And with the same technique as I described before, they grow them. And about probably going back five years, they had the first 3D printed hamburger on a chef program in the UK and the chef fried up the hamburger and all the guests ate it and said, oh, that's so delicious. And then they were told it was like $30,000 for the hamburger. It was science, you know. So that is the closest we come to printed food. And there's a company called Modern Meadow that's now doing this. And now in New Zealand, there's a big interest in that as well. Because in the future, we know there's not going to be enough meat to sustain the world. So either we come all become vegetarians, which would be really depressing, or, or we figure out alternatives for meat and protein. So that is one of the ways we're looking at. So printing food, not really happening today yet, but printing with food is going crazy around the world. And what I mean by that is reconstituting food into new and interesting shapes. So for example, there's now about five or six different commercial chocolate 3D printers available, where you can 3D print your face in chocolate. There's one called the Eat Your Own Face Machine. And yeah, it's a, so the idea of reconstituting food. So Borelli, the pasta company, now do an annual competition on who can design the coolest 3D printed pasta. Uh, bubble gum, noodles. I mean, noodles are good material. Anything that you can squeeze out of a syringe, you can 3D print with. So this is a growing area. Now, most of it to date, printed chocolates is a perfect example, I would call a bit of a gimmick. It's really cool, really fun, but it's not going to save the world. One really nice, good application of this, and we're, we're involved with a pro in a project with that in Sweden right now, it's for people with dysphagia. So elderly people who can't chew and swallow food properly. So the idea right now, those people tend to have to eat basically baby food. It's like a squares of paste, which as you can imagine is not very appetizing. So of course they don't eat as much as they should, so they're malnourished. The idea is to make food, to print food that looks like the same food, but is really easy for them to chew and swallow and eat. And we're succeeding in that. We're able to do it. One of the things we found is when you print a drumstick to look like a chicken drumstick, but it doesn't look quite like a chicken drumstick, people look at it the wrong way. It's called, it's called the uncanny valley, where it doesn't look quite right, so it puts you off. So now we're trying, if we print the chicken drumstick in the shape of a flower, does it become more appetizing? And apparently it does. Because it, you know, if, it, if you're trying to make it fake, it's like uh, robots that try to make like humanoid robots, but they don't look like humanoid robots, so they're actually scary. So now a lot of the robots being made in Korea and Japan right now, they try to make them cute rather than trying to make them look human to overcome that adoption. 
Um, so as I said, this is a good, and the idea is then you can also give textures to the food so it feels crunchy, but the minute they bite into it, it's got a lattice structure like that bone structure I was holding up earlier, and it falls apart almost instantly so they can, so they can eat it. So the idea is to make food more appetizing, and not just that, we talked about mass customization. The old age home, for example, cannot print the food where each food is extra calcium, extra vitamin B, extra, you know, to make it custom made for each patient so it's just the right balance of nutrition that they need. Then also playing with pictures that after the people eat, the plate gets scanned and they can check that the people actually ate everything they were supposed to eat. So to make sure that they really are eating properly. So as I said, I mean, 3D printing, it's a huge area of growth. And what we need now is, you know, as I said, more crazy people trying crazy ideas, because that's the way we're going to move things forward in a big way. And I think on that happy note, I'm pretty much out of time. So I think we'll sh shift it over to you guys for questions, thoughts, discussions. And again, please, if you wait for the microphone to be in front of you. So we've already got a question. We're, we're, we're running hot tonight, so we've got a question there already. Hi, so it's two things, really. Um, the first one, so I wasn't aware that you could 3D print in anything other than, like, plastic but you're saying about printing in metal so you, is that done with you said it was done with powdered metal so metal have obviously has like a much a really quite high boiling point a lot of the time so how, how do you how do you 3d print with metal first of all and secondly um my husband has a 3d printer just to play with like he's had it for a couple of years but he was having problems found, finding programs to download and like run because he thought he might print our son some little lego blocks and stuff and all he managed to print was like a little plastic crappy little jewellery pendant and like a, a spider leg with a couple of joints or something. So do, are there people, is there like an exponential number of people developing apps just like on like iPhone apps do, um, for developing um, programs to print little fun stuff or, or how is that working? Yeah. So absolutely. So to answer the first question, yeah. So the production systems in both plastic and metal work with powdered material. So in this case, powdered metal, you spread a layer of powdered aluminium. In this case, could be titanium, could be gold. So my ring is printed in gold and titanium. So you spread a layer of titanium, and then the laser draws on it. And wherever the laser hits it, it melts it. You then drop the platform down, spread another layer of powder on top, melt it again where you need to, and keep doing that thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And at the end, you vacuum out all the powder that wasn't melted, and you're left with your full part ready to go. Um, when you see the machine in operation, it's actually remarkably simple. And the invitations are anybody who's in Newmarket where our lab is, pop in and you can see the machines in action. They run pretty much every day. The second question with the CAD, there's hundreds and hundreds of CAD applicants. So if you want to design your own stuff, there's software you buy that can be very expensive to relatively cheap, and there's a lot of freeware out there, like 123D is one of them that's really easy. Tinkercad is another one of these. Some of them are online, so you don't even need to download the software. You go to the website, and you can design in 3D on the website. A lot of games now, so Spora, Creature Creator, World of Warcraft, that characters you design in 3D, you can now print. But there's also now repositories like Thingiverse and GrabCAD, which are online libraries where crazy people with too much time on their hands design a lot of stuff and upload it free for the world to download. And as a resource, that is incredible. So to give you an example, when we, we scan a lot of people's fit heads, glasses are a pain to scan, because they reflect that. So normally we scan them without the glasses. Now we could cat up the glasses ourselves, but we're way too lazy to do that. So we go to Thingiverse, we find a pair of glasses that's similar to the ones they were wearing, download it, 
staple it on, I mean, in CAD, merge it with their fa face, and we've got a model to print with. The, the, so as I said, the resources, the libraries that give free models are huge, and there's a lot of them out there. But otherwise, yeah, there's a lot of free CAD out there. There was at one stage, it got banned, but it was, there was one at one stage called Lego CAD, where you literally dr dragged virtual blocks of Lego to build your 3D model, but then Lego sued them and it disappeared. But that was, a, conceptually, that was a really nice idea as a way of making CAD easy to use. Presumably where you have moving parts, like say a piston or a gun mechanism, those have to be printed as components and assembled. Funny you should mention gun mechanisms. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that. So the short answer is for engineering tolerances of moving parts, you have to print them separately. Um, the tolerance, the precision of these 3D printers is nowhere near good enough to make, say, a ball bearing. I mean, I can print a ball bearing that moves, but it'll grind itself to death in about five seconds. So the short ends for engineering parts, you machine them to the right tolerance and assemble them. But yeah, I mean, guns is one of those critical areas that's gotten a lot of press with, you know, with these desktop 3D printers, everybody's, all the criminals are going to be printing guns. Not the case. Never going to happen. So the Australians, Cody Wilson's the American anarchist who came up with a liberator design and said, you know, free for everybody to download. The Australian police printed 10 of them. Eight of them blew up. So Darwin is, you know, Dar you know yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> You can go to the hardware store, buy a piece of pipe, and you're crazy if you're fired, but it's way safer than a cheap 3D printed. To give you the contrast, the Colt 1911 is a classic handgun. This company in America called Solid Concept, who printed, I mean, this is a work of art, 12,000 US dollars to print. You can buy that same gun at Walmart for probably $200. So, you know, to print a quality gun is, yeah, so, but it was just interesting because guns, guns and drugs are two things that people panic about. You're going to, everybody's going to 3D print drugs. Not the case. Do you see in the future that there's an opportunity for 3D printing to kind of deal with some of our waste plastics, particularly the ones that maybe are kind of too small to be collected on curbside, but you could potentially, you know, store some up in your, you know, in backyard and take them to a 3D printer. What are the opportunities around 3D printing to kind of solve our plastics issue? I think it's, it's, it's an opportunity for turning that waste products into valuable product. Now, this is a really boring part. It's a square. This is 50% recycled plastic, 50% recycled car tire. So the problem with recycled plastic is often you don't know what it is, so you don't know how badly it's going to shrink. So in this case, I had a student working out what percentage of car tire could we add into it as a filler material to control the shrinkage. So I had a student with a, with a belt sander sanding down tires to turn it into a material to 3D print with. Not, not a very enjoyable thesis she did. But yeah, it, it works. A 50-50 we found was the right mix to get a really strong part. So the idea behind this project was the favelas in Brazil, where currently the, the, the poor people go collect all the waste product and sell it for next to nothing. It's you know, a commodity. The idea was that in the, the central repository of those favelas to have a 3D printer there, they could take that waste product, the recycled plastic, and turn it into high-value products that they could then sell on. Now, what those high-value products are, I don't know. Could it be tourist trinkets? Probably not, not the best use, but it could be plumbing fittings, for example. Um, so, so adding value by taking those waste products and turning them back into something valuable, I think there's a huge opportunity there. And we're only just starting to scratch the surface. But there's a lot of people working on that, because 3D printing is a way of easily processing some of those polymers that otherwise just wouldn't be worth processing. Unfortunately, today, it's an economic equation. It, you know, if, if you're going to you know, recycle plastic to turn it into more cheap disposable products, it's generally not economically viable. But if you're going to turn them into high-value products, that's when it becomes a bit more interesting. So again, it's added value, I think. 
can you update us the most recent or uh, most cutting edge 3D printers that um, kind of changing the generation the um, or revolutionary to the industry? Yep. So the most revolutionary printers that are going to change the way we do things. To me, this is my personal interest. I, I do product development. So I develop products from the idea to the finished product. The most revolutionary 3D printers are 3D printed electronics. Being able to print the electronics inside the plastic as you go. So you look at almost all products today are largely rectangular in shape. So your iPhone, for example, it's rectangular not because it's the best shape for a phone to be. It's rectangular because you're designing around a fiberglass circuit board that's got all your components on it. So imagine being able to print those electronics inside the plastic shell and not be restricted by that flat shape anymore. So your iPhone could be wrapped around your wrist, for example. And, and I'm not suggesting it's the best shape for an iPhone to be, but just the ability to be able to do that would be phenomenal. We did a lot of work on humanoid robots. So a humanoid, a walking robot, at the ankle you've got two motors, at the knee you've got a motor, at the hip you've got another two motors, multiply that by the other leg, by the time you get to the umbilical cord, all the wires going through at the waist, you've got so many wires that the robot can barely bend over anymore. Imagine being able to get rid of all those wires, put them in the plastic shell of the robot, and being able to use that space for useful things, putting in sensors, carrying beer, it doesn't matter. I mean, all that space would be better used than putting wires in there. So printing wires, they can do today. Not very well, not commercially yet. They've printed successfully transistors. They've printed capacitors. They ha they're not able to print ICs yet. But there's people working on that. So again, is it five years, 10 years, 15 years away? The ability to, so I think to me that's going to revolutionize how we design new products. We're going to see a whole new class of products coming out. And that's really exciting to me. I have a plastic-clad house. How feasible is it to recladding of a house with a 3D printer? I've got to think about that. Yeah, it's a good question because, I mean, because the side of your house is largely flat, it's feasible but not viable. It's going to be way too expensive a way to do something that there's simpler ways to do. Whether you do weatherboard, whether you do cladding, whether you, you know, whatever you clad it with, it's going to be quicker and more cost-effective. Because you technically could print a very small facade on it, but it's going to be so slow compared to slapping on a few panels. I don't think it'll be viable, even though it's doable. Now, if you had a really funky house with walls that do that, which is probably not practical, but you know. The Sagrada Familia, uh, uh, the Gaudi's Cathedral in Barcelona. Now, that would be worth renovating with 3D printing because that's something that would be a horrible pain to try to do any other way because you've got all these sconces and really complex architectural features that would be hard to do. But for a plain house, I'm going to suggest probably not viable today. Maybe in 20 years, as the technologies get a lot faster, it could become a good you know, fixing, reparation, renovation technique. But today, not quite yet, I don't think.